everyone. I hope you are staying healthy and safe. This podcast episode comes with a video interview. If you would like to watch the video interview, you can find the links of the interview in my episode notes. You can watch it either through my YouTube page or my Facebook page called Words of Heart Podcasts. However you choose to listen to it, I truly hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Words of Heart. In today's episode, we have the privilege of speaking with Renee Rodriguez. I hope I said that right. Thank you for joining me today, Renee. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. So, Renee, if you could tell my audience a bit about yourself, that would be great. Sure. Um, so I am, you know what, I, I like to start with saying I'm a Gemini because it kind of explains why I sort of am always fully involved in a couple of different things at the same time. And um, so I'm someone who has always had sort of the day job that you have, but pursuing arts and that type of thing off on the side. And um, I've worked with a lot of really high level people, C-suite people, global people. Um, I worked at a company where there were a lot of celebrities and powerful people around. So um, I've been in roles where I've had like really high level positions where you have to really be in charge, right? And then on the side, I ran a theater company and um, in that way worked with a lot of well-known people as well. Um, So I've always been someone who's found my way to leadership and high level things quite easily. And my life changed due to someone I met, like all of that stuff I talked about was in place, was running strong, you know, I was really running ahead, um, really moving forward with everything. And then I met somebody who became my romantic partner. And that's where things started to change. And here's what I mean by that. When I met my ex, uh, he was incredibly doting. He, we, we stayed up all night in a Starbucks, just talking, talking, talking. And he seemed to really get me. Like we were on the same page about everything. He understood everything. He was finishing my sentences. It was that kind of thing where, you know, you feel like, oh, wow, this could be it, you know? And that would happen again and again as we started dating. And then I realized that we were dating every day, but it felt so fun and it felt so amazing and he understood me so well. So I, I just went with the flow. And that's kind of how I felt like I was doing that. I was just going with the flow and it felt so good and it was amazing how much we got along. So that was great. About three weeks into it, he told me that he loved me. And that's kind of awkward when somebody tells you they love you three weeks in. Obviously, you're not going to say I love you back because you've only known this person for three weeks, no matter how amazing it's been every day. But under some pressure, a couple months later, I said, I love you back, even though I wasn't ready. But there's this pressure, right, of just kind of somebody keeps telling you they love you and they're not being insane about it. But it is weird that they've said it so soon. Um, it was only later that I realized that a lot of the things I've told you are red flags for a really unhealthy relationship. But the way that it 
was unhealthy is what really led to most of the problems that I had after that. Because we ended up moving to moving in together far sooner than I would have. Um, and a couple of years in um, of us being together, there were a couple of things going on. One of them was I discovered that I was pregnant. And that was, you know, great. That was great news. Or so I thought. The other piece of it was, is that there were some things that were starting to come out that didn't feel so good. Um, like he would, uh, he was really quick to be offended by people bumping into him on the subway. It's the subway, right? So that happens all the time. It becomes something you're used to. Um, and then he started to get picky and controlling. And it was kind of like, I, you don't need to go see a play with your friends. That's what I'm here for right? Or I would say, I want to call my family to see if they'll help me out with this. Well, you don't need them. That's what I'm here for. And I did rely on him enough, but he wanted me to rely on him for everything. Absolutely everything. Like it was just me and him. We were a team. That was it. We didn't need anybody else. Add to that the fact that he had a particular way of living that was, um, and I don't want to give away too, too much about him, but he had a particular way of eating. And if you didn't follow exactly the way of eating, which was more restrictive than you can ever imagine, then you were stupid. You were um, causing your own illnesses um, to a point where if I had a headache or had, I remember one day I felt something, a bump on my head, a very tiny bump. And I said, do you see that? What is that? He's all like, I don't know. So I went to see the doctor and she's all like, oh, that's just a cyst. People have those all the time, nothing to do there. And it's so tiny. I was all like, oh, she said, I'm surprised you discovered it. When I told him that, he said, well, that's because you're just not eating right. And so whenever anything happens to anybody, he would come out and he would say, that's just because they're not eating the way I eat. The way I eat is how everyone should eat. And I was starving. I was starving. So when I became pregnant, when I started to really get big, it was like, I was, I had a huge pregnancy. My son was huge. Okay. And so I had this beach ball stomach and then someone took a picture of me because they were like, oh, hey. And they sent me the picture and I suddenly saw something that I realized was problematic. Um, it was like a skeleton holding a beach ball. And I just thought, I'm, I'm starving. I'm starving here is what's happening. And when I said something to him, he said, well, you're just not doing it right. And I was kind of like, okay, well, um, fine, show me how to do it. Then he started getting angry about everything. And my therapist, I started seeing a therapist and she was kind of like, it's, does he like, I mean, you're pregnant. Does he rub your feet? Does he rub your back? Does he sing to the baby? Like, what does he do? And I go, no, he does none of that. He just makes sure that I eat right. You know, which was to say I was starving. So there came a point where the cruelty became so bad that I was wondering how I could get out of this as someone who was pregnant. Um, it was a 98 degree day and we were supposed to meet up with friends, but he was mad that we were meeting up with the friends because they were my friends. So he had me and I was eight months pregnant with a big baby. He had me carrying our little tent and the chairs and everything like a pack mule while he walked without anything ahead. And since he got mad at me about something else along the way, he went way off ahead while I was trudging behind him, just trying to keep up. Eight months pregnant with everything we needed, including our, our foods, right? He would get off of, he got off of a, a bus and he came home and he slammed the door and I knew I was in trouble 
And I wondered why. And he said, you know, I just, I hit my shin. I hit my shin on a fire hydrant when I got off the bus. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, what can I do to help you? And he goes, well, it's your fault. It's your fault because I was thinking about you. I was thinking about coming home to you and I was distracted and I hit my shin. And he was furious with me for two days about that. Then there was the time that he came home and he slammed the door and he was furious because he'd lost his folder. And I was like, oh, well, maybe we can go back and find it. It's gone, it's gone and it's all your fault. It's your fault because of remembering something that you had said the other day. And this type of stuff would happen constantly so that I was walking on eggshells. So a friend came up to me and she's kind of like, I said, I don't know what to do. There's this, that, and the other thing. And he, he wanted an abortion. He wouldn't talk to me for four days unless I had an abortion. And now he won't let the midwife be alone with me. And she said, Renee, I think you're being mentally abused. And I said, I don't know what that is, right? And how could somebody who works with CEOs and celebrities and world-renowned people and run companies and run strategy be mentally abused? How could a strong person be abused? That's not me, right? So I asked my therapist, I said, hey, you've been with me for nine months. My friend thinks I'm being mentally abused. Do you? And she said, yes. And I said, my God, why haven't you said something to me? She said, because you can't say something to somebody who's being emotionally abused because they will continue to defend the person who is abusing them because that's how far they're stuck in the abuse. And she said, what I was doing though, that led you to be able to hear your friend and probably led your friend to realize she could say it to you was to get you to start using your voice and realizing that the stuff he was saying to you was gaslighting, that none of it was really very real. You know, it's, you're not sick because you don't eat only what he thinks you should eat, which really amounts to, I say without exaggeration, 12 items. And I was like, I, I don't know what to do with this. So she kind of helped me through it. I had the baby. The pregnancy was unbelievable because at one point, at, at the beginning, I said, you know what? I think, I think I might be in labor. He goes, oh, you're not in labor. It was just a hot day at the beach. And you're having like, you're probably just have a little bit of heat exhaustion. It's like, well, it kind of comes and goes. And he's all like, and this is, you have to understand who you're seeing and hearing right now. And the person I've described I was before I met him, it's not the person who was talking to him. I was completely, I was gone. I was, I was, uh, I was small. I had, I had to make myself small in order to survive what was going on, you know? And so I was kind of like, oh, okay, well, maybe it is just heat exhaustion. So I went in my room and I called my mom and I was kind of like, mom, I think I, I kind of think I'm in labor. <laughs> it kind of, here's what's going on. She goes, Renee, you're in labor. I said, you know what though? He said, it's just heat exhaustion. So let's wait and see. 12 hours later, I said, you know what? I think we need to call the midwife. So we called her and she said, describe what's going on. She says, you're in labor, you've been in labor. I'm coming over. So she comes to her home because he had insisted on, he had suggested a home birth. And I agreed with that. Then he insisted on an unassisted birth, which means that you deliver the baby yourself because he wanted to be the one to deliver the baby because we didn't need anyone else. 
So the midwife came over, but he wouldn't really let her administer it to me. At a certain point, she was crouching in a corner against the door. She later told me that she herself had been mentally abused and could not believe the amount of abuse that was going on while I was going through labor. At one point, I just, I was in so much like discomfort. I can't quite call it pain, but it was such deep discomfort during a, a contraction that I said, oh God. And he goes, don't say that. We don't believe in God. Don't say, oh God say something else. And I was just all like, I remember that one moment because it was so astounding to me that he was directing what exclamations I would make while I was in labor. But there was so much more and my midwife could barely handle it. Um, and so the whole thing was just unbelievable. Um, it ended up that my son's head was too big. So we ended up at a hospital, anyway, a hospital that we had chosen with some really friendly other midwives and a great doctor who delivered him. Five months later, after I'd had just about enough, including him coming home and yelling at me one day because I called the midwife when I was bleeding and he was upset that I hadn't called him. And I'd had, it had been one of those days. So for those of you, those of your audience members who are moms, <laughs> it had been one of those days where my lovely, wonderful son, it, everything had just come together. He, he had a diaper explosion. So I had poo on me. There was his, his urine on me in certain spots. He puked. I mean, he was a great baby. And then I was bleeding. So I'm lying on the bed exhausted because the labor, the birth had been, had been an easy pregnancy, a very hard delivery. So I had had a perineal tear and I couldn't sit or stand for very long at all. So I was always prone. I was always lying down. So I was lying there in pain from that, plus bleeding, plus all of my poor little baby's excrements all over me. And he's standing over me and he's like, I cannot believe that you called her before. Don't you ever call anybody else again. It has to be just me. It was something along those lines. And I was like looking at him like, I just, I have to get out. You know, I have to get out. So there was a day where he was angry and he was uploading something for a job that he wanted, but it wouldn't upload. You know how it is. And um, he came in, he said, it won't upload. And I said, well, while you're waiting, could you look this up for me real quick? And um, I can't remember what it was I asked him to look up because it was so inconsequential. It was just something I was wondering, I think maybe. But he goes back in and this thing's just not uploading and he's been trying for a couple hours. So, um, but he's not making dinner. And he always made dinner because I wasn't allowed to make dinner. And I was starving because I was breastfeeding. And you're not, I never start, I was never hungry when I was pregnant, but man, when you're breastfeeding, you are starving. So I was all like, I, I have to eat something. So I went in and I was kind of like, are you, are you gonna make dinner? He goes, well, I was gonna upload this video, but thanks to you asking me to look up this other thing on the internet, it's not uploading. So, you know, I'm used to by now his illogical, if something bad happens to me, it's Renee's fault thing. Um, so I was all kind of like, I have to eat. The baby's awake. So I asked him to hold the baby. I will never forget this tableau that lives forever in my mind of me in the kitchen, just hand shaking, trembling, just trying to make myself food. And I barely made myself anything because, he was sitting there on the other side of the room with our baby on the edge of his knee 
just held out on the edge of his knee and he was turned and he was glaring at me the whole time. And of course the baby can say, so the baby, our son just starts to cry a little. He didn't respond at all. I don't know if he just didn't hear the baby or didn't care. All he was focused on was giving me the most murderous look he could give me. And my hands are trembling and I'm just trying to make myself some food without cutting myself. I just made something, I barely made anything, just enough to get through and then came and swooped, grabbed my son and went into the other room. Then I emailed my friend and I said, so you think I'm mentally abused? I'm leaving tomorrow. And she goes, okay, what can I do? And I said, he works at this time. I think that's when I need to go. I don't think I can handle talking to him about it. And that felt wrong to me. So the next day when she came over and he was at work, I said, let me just call the DV hotline because my therapist suggested it and I don't know. So I called the DV hotline and I said, this is gonna sound crazy. And I don't know, I don't think you guys are the ones to help me because I haven't been hit. I haven't been pushed, I haven't been grabbed. Um, he has gotten like louder and he's starting to slam things a little. And she's all like, okay, back up. Can you explain some of the things he's saying to you then? So I told her some of the things he was saying and she started finishing my sentences for me. And she goes, so you're suffering psychological and emotional and mental abuse. And I said, okay, so how do I tell him I'm leaving? She goes, based on what you're telling me, I think you just need to get out before he gets home. And I started arguing with her. I started saying, well, I don't think he's gonna hurt me. And she said, listen, Renee, trust me, just, just go. And so I was all kind of like, well, she knows what she's doing. And she was finishing my sentences, right? And here's my friend. So we were, it was at the middle of a snowstorm. There was like three feet of snow and I'm trudging through there with, I just walked off with two bags one and a half of them were filled with stuff for my son. And then I grabbed a little bit of something for me and just went to my friend's house and stayed there. And various friends held me for the next three weeks, you know. All of this led to a custody battle. We don't go to school and learn how to do a custody battle, <laughs> you know, um, because we don't want this to happen, right? And listen, I know, so 91% of separating couples, they don't end up in court. They, they negotiate with themselves, you know, just between themselves or they go and get lawyers and, you know, they arbitrate, whatever it might be but only 9% of custody battles end up in court because they're not really custody battles. The couples figure it out. But after I left him, he started love bombing me again. And he was all kind of like, can we just, can we just go to couples counseling? And you know, I'm a good Puerto Rican Catholic girl and I'm all kind of like family, 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 maybe I should give him a chance. So I was all kind of like, okay, We went to this poor man, <laughs> he was very good, but he, after four, after four um, sessions with my ex and me, 
he got in a shouting match with my ex and my ex ended up leaving and he ended up apologizing to me, the counselor, the psychologist. And he said, I've never done that before. And I was all kind of like, actually, it was incredibly freeing for me to see that <laughs> because all of this stuff that he was spouting to you, it looked like you were believing it because it sounded really believable when he was, even I was all kind of like, gosh, maybe, maybe I am the problem, you know? It just made no sense. And so I didn't know that he had diagnosed my ex throughout the amount of time that we tried to reconcile with him. We did not end up reconciling. We tried and it didn't work because I was just done. I'd woken up, right? My psychologist, my therapist, you know, the DD, I'd woken up and I realized that all the actions I was taking were hollow. They were well-meaning but they were hollow and thank God, you know, thank God that I just walked out and just left that relationship. Okay. But things were still crazy after that. We didn't have anything in order. We weren't in court just yet. Okay. So the way it started was that um, I got a, I got a nanny. I got somebody to help out, but I can't afford a nanny. I couldn't at the time. And so I was trying to figure out how to make that work. He refused to give me any money. It was all like, I'm not going to give you any money, but I want to see our child all the time. But he had to work, but he didn't want to work a lot. So he was underemployed, which meant he, meant he had a lot of time to be with our son, but he would show up whenever he wanted to my house. And that was really disruptive to me, to you know my son's babysitter. The whole thing was like a mess. So he was still controlling us. He was still controlling me and then my nanny because she was all kind of like, I had a doctor's appointment. He said he was going to show up. Where is he? Because he felt like he could stop and pick up whenever he wanted. So imagine the chaos of never knowing when somebody's going to come and take your child. And then you don't know when they're going to come back with your child. You don't know if they're going to come back with your child. And so I was living in, I was still living in a constant state of fear. It felt better because I wasn't walking on eggshells all the time, but I was still terrorized seeing that an email had come in from him where he was telling me what a terrible person I was and how great our relationship had been. And that if there was anything bad about it, it was my fault, right? I talked to 12 lawyers because that's the kind of person I am. <laughs> I'm a researcher, I'm a strategist. And that was a smart thing to do because they each gave me information. What's interesting about when you go and you see a lot of lawyers who are do free consultations is that you begin to learn what advice you're going to get from everybody. And that teaches you a lot, right? Because you don't know anything. The thing I find is that when I work with my clients, now that I'm in this line of work, is that it's always the same thing. We don't know what it's like to have a lawyer and how to use them and how to, how to have them fight for us. So we're going off of the only thing we do know and that is what we see on television shows and on, you know, in media, which is they're standing up and they're walking around and they're fighting for you and they know everything about you and that's not the reality at all. It's not at all, which I'll get to, but first let me tell you my experience. <laughs> so, one of them was really funny. She said the thing that was funniest to me because she goes, you know, this guy's angry all the time. It sounds to me like he could just use a hamburger and then he would be a lot better, which was hilarious because it's a guy who only eats 12 pieces of food, right? 12, 12 foods. He eats a lot of these 12 foods, but he eats them. So 
I finally ended up picking a lawyer, but it was after taking the advice of these 12 lawyers who said, you, here's the interesting thing. We completely believe you, but you don't have any evidence. And I was all kind of like, well, how do I get evidence? And so they gave me some ideas of how to get evidence. And I was all kind of like, okay, all right, I'll do that. So the best piece of evidence, the best evidence you can get, I now know. Um, I mean, there are a lot of great pieces of evidence, but if you have nothing, then email is your gold, but you're waiting for the right email. And that's what I was doing. There was a lot about him that was so extreme that when I told the lawyers this, they were all like, oh my God, do you, what, what proof do you have of any of this? And I said, no, I'm telling you. And they were like, no, that, that's not, nobody's, nobody's even going to believe what you're saying. It's crazy. So I was like, well, how do I get crazy on paper? <laughs> right? How do I do that? So there was one day where he had come over and he said, um, he, was, he was there. I let him into my home at that point and he was playing with our son. And I tentatively started the topic of, we should start feeding our son more food. <laughs> and so I said, listen, so I fed him um, some, some broccoli and he goes, you did what? I was all like, well, broccoli's healthy, broccoli's healthy, broccoli's healthy. And he's all kind of like, I can't believe it. And he just went off on me because nothing's as healthy as these 12 foods that he eats. And so um, he had a look in his eye that I had never seen even when I was with him and it scared me. And I was glad that he was across the room. But the great thing about it was, was that he went home <laughs> and he wrote me the longest email of just pure insanity. And by some pure dumb luck, he included little bits of every piece of his insane philosophies. Like everything that I'd started to buy into, every piece of the cult-like ideals where I was all kind of like, that does make sense. I'm going to try that. That makes sense too. Kind of weird, but I can see where he's going with this because he sounds so good, right? It was all on paper. And he just wrote, like, you could scroll this email. And I was all like, I am still scrolling. This is magnificent. Once I had that, I went and I found myself the lawyer that I went with. And when he saw that, he's all like, you got to get control of your life. And I was all like, thank you. Because this man stops by whenever he wants and demands our child and says, you have to let me see him. So I had my lawyer. We started gathering a bunch more evidence. Now that I had that, everything else became supplemental. But I knew it wasn't enough. And here's what's interesting about that is that I'm a strategist. Um, I'm a researcher, uh, you know, and I'm a teacher. And all of these things needed to come together into something, but I couldn't figure out what. And I knew that I was applying myself to the case, but there was a, a piece I was missing and I didn't know how to access it. Well, while I was looking up, while I was um, looking up things, I discovered something called narcissistic personality disorder. And um, what was interesting about that was that when I was trying to recover from the mental abuse, I could only get so far. Like you can look up mental abuse and psychological abuse and you can get some really good resources and read some good books and get your therapist to help you. But I still wasn't feeling, I was still feeling terribly afraid and sad and, and confused about what was real and what wasn't. Is broccoli healthy? Maybe it is unhealthy, right? I, I didn't even know anymore what was real and what wasn't. It's, a, it's, an, it's unbelievable to be in that state where you don't know if the sky is blue and the grass is green because you might be wrong. Somebody might know better than you, right? And so while I was going on to a Facebook group for um, mental abuse, something like that, somebody mentioned Melanie Tonya Evans. 
And I started looking her up and she used the term narcissistic um, personality disorder. And since that was new to me, I was like, what is that? And so she said, here's a test to see if your um, partner is a narcissist. I took that test and I was all like, holy crap. So I got on her mailing list and I was all like, this is it. This is absolutely it. And she had a course that I was like, I'm not going to take a course. I'm not going to get in a program. That's ridiculous. I can help myself. And then one day I was like, I feel like I just need to do this program, I guess. I did the program and I called a friend and we were talking and she goes, can I say something to you? And I said, yeah. She goes, I don't know what you're doing, but you're back. I see you again. The Renee is back. It isn't like this small person. You're back. Excuse me while I get some water. So it was an amazing thing to hear, right? So I stayed on Melanie's group and I learned a lot more about it, right? Excuse me. While I was in her group, while I was doing that thing, somebody mentioned the name of a woman, Tina Swithin, who turns out to be the head of One Mom's Battle. I got in touch with Tina and it turns out she does coaching. And I said, um, you know, I'd like you to coach me. I will tell you right now, the single smartest thing I did for my case was to get a custody coach. Tina changed the trajectory of my case because I could tell going into it that in spite of the proof I had, my ex, he looks great. He sounds soft-spoken and amazing. He's a yoga guru. He meditates. He does a lot of amazing things. And that was what attracted me to him. He sounds smart. He looks smart. There's no way anybody's not going to believe what this man says. And I could see that in spite of the proof I had, I needed something else. And I couldn't quite figure out what it was because he was already charming the court professionals. Tina helped me figure out how to look at my evidence in a way where I could present it so that they would see what the truth was. She went through and advised me and coached me on all of it. And it, it completely changed the way I was even interacting with my lawyer. Now I knew how to partner with my lawyer. Um, and there came a point where there's a point in every custody battle, if it goes far enough, where you'll get what's called a forensics evaluation, a custody evaluation, whatever it might be called in you know, anybody's jurisdiction. And when I was going through it, she goes, so this is probably one of my weaker areas. There are, there are people who just do this, um, who coach just this. Do you wanna to go to one of them? Um, I said, do you think I should? She goes, well, you actually have, interestingly enough, like you're, you have this analytical piece to you and you're so strategic. Let's see first before I send you to them. So I went back and I said, okay, well, what is a custody evaluation? She explained it to me and I said, okay, I think I got this, I'll come back to you. During our next session, I showed her what I put together to show the evaluator. And Tina said, oh, I've, oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. And I was all like, oh my God, is it bad? Am I way off base? She goes, no, I cannot believe how clearly you've laid this out. This is unbelievable. This is 
absolutely what you need. You have really made it so obvious what the truth is with proof so that it's not, you practically don't even have to tell her because all she needs is what you have laid out here. So I said, great. So the custody evaluator did indeed put out a report that gave me the recommendations that I wanted for the custody battle. And then we ended up settling and it was because of that report that I was able to settle and get the custody arrangement that I knew was best for our family, right? The reason I tell you my story this way, Dion, is that um, all of this led me to become a custody coach. Because, you know, you come out of these situations and you regain something in your life, right? You're okay, like you, you lose something. When you've been in, a, in an abusive relationship, there's a lot you lose. You lose pieces of yourself and that's the biggest thing. You lose just your own feeling of security and safety. But you know what else you lose? This guy brought down my theater company. Everybody abandoned it because I brought him into it because he thought it would be a great idea. And he started chasing everybody out. I had I, I walked in with the biggest amount in my savings account I'd ever had in my entire life that took me forever to save because I wasn't a big money maker, you know? By the end of the relationship, I was not only at zero, I was in debt because of the financial abuse I didn't even realize was there, but I was paying for everything and I was persuaded to get an apartment. And since I was making more than he was, he wanted to break it down by percentage, a whole bunch of very logical reasons to break me financially. I walked in with a lot of close friends. I walked out having lost touch with a lot of those friends and had to work to regain them. You lose a lot when you're in an abusive relationship. I'm glad I left before it became physically abusive, but I still have days where like I, I, there's so, I've only told, I've told you barely anything of what the abuse was like. But the reason I told you about the whole, the reason you're sick is because you ate badly is because that one, I still can't get rid of. Like if I don't feel well, I blame myself entirely. I'm not disputing that there isn't a relationship between healthy eating, right, and health, but that's what he was capitalizing on. That's how he got into his abuse. That's how they do it. They take a piece of logic, uh, something that everybody knows to be true, and they turn it into this whole big controlling thing. And that is one thing I'm still having a hard time with. Um, you know, one of the first things I did when I left him and got my own place with my son was I was walking along and I was like, oh, I better go get, I better go get one of these 12 items to eat. And then I was all like, wait a minute, walked into this bodega picked out a Reese's peanut butter cup, paid for that baby, walked out the door, opened it up and snarfled it down. <laughs> I was just all like, I'm having a Reese's peanut butter cup, baby. That's how bad the abuse was. And that's how amazingly freeing it was, right? But there's no denying that it's still difficult for me. Most of it I've rejected. I understand that um, I cannot so be in somebody's mind that they will stub their toe or hit their shin or lose whatever they might want to lose, right? Um, I understand a lot of what's obvious, but when there's something that's systematically put in you every day um, and it's based on what you did have an initial belief around, then it is hard to, to let go of those types of things. 
So I became a custody coach because um, Tina was like, you got to share this. This is going to, this is going to change people's cases. And I was all kind of like, she goes, she goes, you got to be a coach. You got to switch the coaching you're doing. Cause I had been a performance coach um, for 20 years, frustratingly to a point where everybody else was getting these film deals and working on law and order and on Broadway. Um, and I, who had been an actor just couldn't. So I was clearly one of those people who, um, but I loved it. I loved teaching so much more than acting. So I guess it worked, but it was successful. And I was all like, why would I want to stop coaching that? But that's the interesting thing about my stories that I was all like, I want to do something more impactful. And there are lots of great acting coaches out there. There are really hardly any good custody coaches out there. There are really hardly any custody coaches out there. And now that I understand the power, custody battles are not something to fool around with. And before I alluded to, you know, you think you know what your lawyer is there for. Your lawyer is just there to represent you in court. And now that I'm a custody coach, I can't tell you how many clients when they first come to me and we're talking, I'm seeing if I can help them. And I, one of the questions I ask them is, um, you know, what's your lawyer strategy? They don't know. And so it's kind of like, okay, maybe you just don't know, but it's there. So I'm going to ask you a few more questions and you, you give me the answers and I'll tell you what your, what your lawyer strategy is. There isn't one, no matter how hard we, we, we talk back and forth and that type of thing. So you think your lawyer is going to give you, you have, going to have a strategy. You think your lawyer is going to tell you what you need to do. But plenty of my clients come to me after they've lost what they wanted, whether it's because they ended up with 50-50 custody when they wanted full custody or whether they completely lost their kids. Um, you know, so for the ones that are at the beginning of their custody battle, that's one thing. For the ones that are in the middle, they, they come to me and they're kind of like, I don't know what happened. And I can say to them, these are the things you need to have in place. Did you have those? It's kind of like, no, because their lawyer just basically wasn't even asking them for the right things. And it was astounding to me right off the bat when I started working with clients that a lawyer wouldn't, and there are good ones out there, of course, but that so many of these lawyers wouldn't be telling you know, these moms and these dads what exactly they needed to go in and show that their story was the true story and not the charming impression management person who really is actually quite abusive behind closed doors, right? So I told Tina, you know, let me get through my own case first, but the blueprint was getting out. You know, everyone wanted the blueprint and it was kind of like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna make that shift. I made that shift. I started working with clients. I started realizing that the blueprint needed to go even beyond sort of the evaluator's blueprint, but that a blueprint was needed for the entire custody case because people were messing up and, and making missteps, mistakes that were hurting them before they even got to the evaluator. And I realized there's not, I mean, I can help a lot with the evaluator, but be a lot easier if people got it from the start. And that's how I created my blueprint. So with, uh, you know, so many years of being, a, of, you know, of working as a strategist, as an administrator, um, and, and, you know, in such high levels and working with great, amazing, um, you know, people, amazing strategists and amazing negotiators, um, I realized that the strategist, the teacher, and the researcher equals a coach for custody. And I've been through it and I've been up against a high conflict personality. 
And um, I know that you can come out the other end and be okay and get the custody arrangement that you want. And I know that even, and it's not gonna be right away, but that there will even come a point where, you know, y'all can be civil to each other because, you know, my ex and I have reached that point, right? Um, that's not to say that we look like the couple who amicably were all kind of like, well, we're not gonna be able to make it. Let's be friends. Which, which should we do that's best for the kids? When you're dealing with somebody who has a high conflict personality disorder, they're always gonna disagree with what you think is best for the kids. And it can be a battle, especially when somebody believes that human beings should only be eating these foods. You know what I'm saying? So um, there's the ongoing battle, but the bigger battle, the custody battle, I realized that there were too many people who, because they were still in trauma as they're going through the added trauma of a custody battle, that the way they were appearing in court was to their detriment, you know, and nobody's telling them these things. They're going in and they're basically saying when everybody sees, I mean, honestly, it's okay that I'm coming off this way because now they'll understand what I went through. No, the court doesn't see that. The court sees somebody who can't handle being a parent. You know what I'm saying? Or, well, I'm Italian. This is just who I am. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be bombastic. No, they see somebody who your ex is smart. He basically says, this is an angry, abusive mom. And you're coming in being a grace, a, a angry and loud. Who are they going to believe? The charming person who's saying, look how angry she is, or the Italian letting her you know, personality come out. It's not like you have to go into court and not be you, but you have to go in court and be strategic about the way you are. You wouldn't go into a job interview just being you. So the courtroom is not a place to just be you either. The courtroom is also a place to be as strategic as you're gonna be in a job interview, but even more so because my God, the stakes are so high. These are your kids, you know? This is, what kind of an upbringing do you want them to have? The upbringing that has the emotional or maybe plus physical abuse behind closed doors, whereas in public, what a great parent that person is, right? The Disney dad, the Disney mom thing? Yeah. Or do you want somebody who has the majority of their time with a healthier parent? I'm not saying healthy, right? But I am saying healthier. And that's what we want. Absolutely. And I truly am mighty for sharing that. I am surprised I'm not in tears right now because like the fact that you were able to survive that is just remarkable like you're a true true warrior I go by this whole mantra being a warrior for change and you sit you exemplify that to a T just your whole heart and your character and the fact that you're willing to help others um, particularly going through custody battles is also inspirational as well because you because I know there's different types of coaches and strategies and methods and obviously you're a performance coach so um there's a whole different mentality when it comes to that but the fact that you actually have some brutal yet yeah I'm gonna use the word brutal um you don't have to because obviously it I'm sure sometimes it still affects you to a degree brutal experience that you're able to use that experience to actually help said client because you can help the client and persuade them and coach them but it serves so much more value if you've actually lived the experience that your client may be possibly experiencing yeah yeah I think brutal is a good word I remember after 
right after I left him, I called my younger brother, my little brother. And he's all like, was it, I mean, was it really that bad? And I said, I was miserable. And it's not that anybody doesn't recognize the word miserable. It's just that we all have our own vernacular. And the word miserable is such an extreme word that it's really not in my vernacular very much. But I, but that's exactly how I would describe. I was in abject misery day in and day out, just waiting to see what he would be like when he came home. And of course, all of this gets, and this is the story for all of my clients, all of this is denied later. It's like, she's crazy. All of this is, but then when you gather enough proof, then, and it's, what then happens is you could have all this proof, but it depends on how you put it together. For example, remember how I said, um, I have clients obviously who come to me, they're like, I'm in this custody battle, blah, blah. And then there's those who are kind of like, I'm in the middle of my custody battle, or I lost my custody battle or whatever, right? People who are further along in this kind of process, they're like, I don't understand. And I say, well, what's your evidence? And they'll list out their evidence and I'll say, this is amazing. So tell me, how did you present this evidence? And they're all like, I gave it to all of them. I printed it all out and gave it to them. It's kind of like, and that's where you went wrong. But that's what lawyers, a lot of lawyers tell their clients to do. So um, it really does matter the way that you present it. And it's also one of the biggest things I tell my clients is you, you do want to document everything with the understanding that you're only going to use 10% of it. So these, these clients, these moms were walking in with stacks of amazing evidence and they print out everything they'd ever gathered and they handed it off expecting somebody who, you know, these people who only work from 10 to four with a two hour lunch and they see a lot of different cases per day to actually sit and go through something that would take several hours to go through, right? So think about that. that who's gonna do that? Nobody, even your lawyer, even my lawyer looked at my stack and stuff. He saw the first few things, he goes, oh my God. And I said, what should I submit? And he's all like, all of it. And thank God that my divorce coach was like, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Um, but even she told me to submit far more than I should have. Like I've learned so much from what I did wrong in my case, as well as what I did right now. The majority of my case was, I mean, the truth is my case was great. Even when I lost something, we strategically lost it. And that's what I help my clients do too. Because you can't, listen, for, for those of you who are listening in a custody case, I say this to my clients who come back after where they're all kind of like, I didn't get everything. I had one client who was all kind of like, um, you know, I got this, 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 but they gave him an extra day each week. And she was all like, I can't believe I lost. And I was all kind of like, <laughs> you so completely won. And he still doesn't have overnights. That means that you presented the fact that he's on steroids and that he punches holes in the walls and that type of thing. That means you presented in a way where they actually read it and understood it. Because plenty of people are saying that their exes punch holes in the walls. And the, co and the judges are all kind of meh, they seem really cool to me, you know? So this means that we got there, you know? And so I, I, my message here is you're not going to win every battle and you're not gonna win every little thing in every court appearance, court hearing. But your custody battle, it's called a battle, but the truth is it's a custody war. Because every time that you have an appearance, a hearing, a meeting with a court professional, each one of those things is a battle. So. If you've got this custody war, you can't possibly win every battle in between. And the truth is you can't win every battle in between because the court doesn't want you to win every battle in between. Because if the court just basically completely sides 
with one of you, then there's going to be appeals and then you're going to be back in court again. So it's not the worst thing in the world. But what you want to do is you want to be strategic about what you lose and when you lose it. So what it is and the timing of it. And that's a big thing that I work with my clients with. So that from the start, what we do is we look at where we're at at the beginning or where we're at when you come to me, let's put it that way. And I find out what's been happening. And then we plot it out and we figure out, okay, here's what you need. Here's what I'm looking at. Here's what's going on, you know? And I feel like for some reason, and it doesn't, it, it's in my head, what comes in my head, which may not feel like a natural transition. So I apologize if it doesn't, but it's, it's very linked is that one of the biggest problems that come up in court, one of the biggest mistakes that people going through court that moms have, um, I mostly work with moms, as you can tell, I do work with some dads, but statistically speaking, it is mostly moms who are, who are emotionally abused. So as a result, I mostly work with moms. The biggest mistake is in emails um, because these narcissists, these cluster B personality disorders, um, disordered individuals, whether they, uh, whether it's narcissism or bipolar, histrionic or antisocial, because those are the cluster B personality disorders. And those are the ones that end up in court. They know how to trigger you because they know you. They studied you in order to make you believe that they were this person you could marry or have a child with, right? Remember, the thing I say very often to clients is, you know, because they're down on the other, how could I have fallen for somebody who's like this? And everybody's looking at me like, there's no way that person is like that or you wouldn't have married them. No, there is. The person you leave is not the person you married, right? So the person you married, you're not going to marry somebody who you're going to end up leaving in that way, right? So this person knows you well enough to have gotten you fooled into believing they were who they were. So they are good at triggering you. And so a lot of the emails I see going back and forth between, um, you know, with my clients, they're making the two biggest mistakes. There are a lot of mistakes that are made over email, uh, but the two biggest ones that we work on. The first is when you're triggered, like I said. And so you'll come back and you're basically, you're doing name calling, you're being rude, you're, you're being, um, it's not good. You know what I'm saying? It's like a little mini Jerry Springer show on paper. Um, the other reason, um, the other way that people make the mistake of um, creating evidence against themselves is just in the fact that they, they don't craft it in a way where you're showing yourself or they're showing themselves as the healthier parent. Right, so it seems like those two are the same thing. They're not, because on the one hand, it's kind of like you are just a mess. The other one is you're not a mess, you know you're not being a mess, and yet you're still making mistakes. And the mistakes are you're giving them too much information or you're holding back information you need to, or you're visibly fighting with them. Even if it's just you know middle-class arguing, you're still doing it. Um, you're sounding too casual. You're not keeping a distance. There's no boundaries. Um, these things appear in court and just, there's a variety of ways that that makes you look like you're not the healthier parent. So interestingly enough, just the emails you're writing back and forth could be messing up your case. So it's fascinating. And that's, I mean, there's a lot of pieces to what we do, but that's one of the bigger things that I wanted to share out there because it's one of the first things that you can kind of try to course correct, right?
Right, and I'm glad you touched on that. Um, I do have maybe one or two questions before we wrap up here. Um, the first question, um, do you think um, because of the pandemic, though very unfortunate and negative, um, though it's given many people a time to reflect and focus on what truly matters, um, it also um, unfortunately has brought a lot of quarantine and isolation pertaining to particular couples. Um, do you feel um, the emotional abuse may have increased um, due to the pandemic? Yeah, we know it has. We know it has. Um, we know from, uh, if you look at the statistics for how many, uh, how much the shelters are just not getting as many people in, some of them as low as like 12%. Um, we also have, you know, if you look at the statistics of people who are not calling into the DV hotline because they don't have the room to do so, right? So um, we know we have very clear insight into what effect it has in terms of stifling the safety measures that um, moms can take or dads, but that anyone who's being abused can take, right? Um, in terms of people who were able to get a custody case started, um, it's interesting you should bring this up because I have had more clients that are nesting, like they're still at home with their um, co-parent because I mean, COVID has made that a huge, a huge reason. So that's been kind of interesting. Um, but there's more people who are coming in more thoughtfully with more stories of what's happening at home. And the, the thing that that's created is that if they're at home all the time, then you're unable to get really any particular proof of anything. Does that make sense? Because yeah. you're not gonna be emailing each other because you're in the same house. The, even the texting goes down. Um, interestingly enough, although I always recommend that if you're in a custody battle, you stop texting and just stop using it ent almost entirely. Um, texting has um, become in these particular extreme cases, um, one of the more useful things, because then when they do leave the house for whatever reason, they're usually texting something kind of cruel or controlling back at the mom. Um, so that's useful, but texts are probably, they're definitely great evidence, but they're not the strongest evidence, almost no matter what's in them. Um, I mean, it's a case by case basis, but overall, I would say that email is going to be far stronger than texting because uh, texting will always look emotional, even if you're not being emotional. And you're more likely to respond quickly. Whereas with email, you can take your time responding. You can take a few hours. You can respond the next day, right? If it's nothing urgent. So um, it's email is just a safer place to, to communicate. And it's also just a better way to communicate because the court can more clearly see what the issues are through the threads. But that was taken, that's been taken away from a lot of people who are stuck at home with their abusers. Um, so the control is just constant. Think of it this way, when your abuser leaves the house, whether you're there or not, it still gives you a break. It still gives you some sense of freedom, some sense that you can go there and you know that they're at work or that you are there while they're at work, right? Right. Um, I'm really glad you um, shared your perspective on because, um, and just from the previous interviews I've done, um, I know some people have truly been affected by this to some degree, and I'm sure it has not been easy on 
any type of relationship whatsoever. So that could bring a sense of um, fear because of the close proximity and having to be around them all the time and bring just a bunch of cans of worms because of um, the limitations one has to be outside right now. Right. Right. There's no place for them to go to be safe. Right. So I do have an eyes for your question to wrap things up. I'm so enjoying this conversation. I'm surprised I'm not in tears, um, but I truly admire you and your work and the fact that, as I stated earlier, you are indeed a warrior. Um, There's no other better classification to who you are and your spirit and your strength. And I truly commend you for using your um, compassionate heart and your journey to help others through the exact same thing. That's a, that's a really awesome thing for you to say and to, to even um, spend this time with me has been really something. I wanna say that you've used the word warrior twice and the, the program that I've created where, um, you know, moms can come in and get the entire blueprint and work with me for their case. It's actually called the Custody Warriors Blueprint Program because I believe that in order for you to be, in order for you to win your custody case, you have to find your noble warrior and that you're not out to annihilate or destroy your ex, but that you are out there to protect your children and get control of your world um, and your life and your dreams again. And so it's called the custody, custody warriors program because of that. So I love that you see that warrior going on and why I chose that name. (laughs) Yes. Um, I've been going through that same, um, mantra myself, um, just to give you a little insight before you to our fun icebreaker question. Um, I got diagnosed with diabetes a year ago at the start of the pandemic, being diagnosed with any health condition during this um, unfortunate season um, was something none of us wants to experience, especially me. But um, in spite of that drastic health change, I saw it um, as God's way of giving my life more purpose, because if it hadn't occurred, as hard as it is for people to process this, um, I could have died. You mentioned being a skeleton during um, your um, story, which was really heartbreaking for me to hear, but um, that I was also, it's in no way com- in comparison to yours, by no means, but um, the skeletal um, description you gave, I was, I experienced that particular um, description because I literally was a skeleton. Um, so um, I understand the whole warrior mentality in spite of one's circumstances and so um, I'm glad we can connect as far as the warrior-like <laughs> spirit. <laughs> um, on a warrior-like um, icebreaker question, I guess, um, I guess in a way this pertaining to our conversation in a way as far as warriors and skills. Um, if you could have any superpower that's not flying or teleporting, Many people pick teleporting because they're <laughs> traveling or they can't pick flying, but it's the exact same thing. Um, so if you could have any superpower that's not flying or teleporting, what would it be? And feel free to have some fun with it. Oh gosh, now I feel boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And it's funny, I don't, that, what a surprise. Um, I think, you know, I didn't, I did not expect that question. So um, I, mean, I didn't know what to expect. So I guess the first thing that came into my mind was not flying or teleporting. I didn't know what would come to my mind, but I guess it's, it's so funny because we're talking about warriors, but it's actually uh, strength, super strength, um, like Wonder Woman level strength, because um, I, um, I have these amazingly strong legs and my upper body, like my arms are just I don't know, even when I do yoga and have like some guns, those guns are not loaded, my friend. <laughs> I, I cannot lift a lot. Strength. I'm going to go with super strength. I'm sorry it isn't more imaginative than that, but oh, I can think fine. of the things I could do. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Many people answer this question differently, which makes it so fun. And why I love making it like a signature staple, because I love hearing people's answers and perspectives in regards to this question. Um, my power, it's not exactly a power yet, but I feel like it would be one in the future, would be the power for this podcast to be heard across other galaxies that have yet to be discovered. So it's not even discovered. It's not even in NASA's database yet. And yet they're listening to the podcast right now. That's pretty cool. So that would be like a Captain Marvel type of thing. See, that's my thing. I'm like, I'm a Marvel geek. So... <laughs> Yeah, but you would so, want Captain Marvel to take that everywhere is what you would want. I actually, I'm I'm not a huge Marvel head. I'm just gonna be honest. Oh, I I'll did forgive have, you. <laughs> but I did have the privilege of seeing Captain Marvel being one of the few Marvel movies I've seen. And I get where you're going with it. That was quite a movie. And yes, Captain Marvel. Yeah, underrated. Very good movie, yeah. We can deliver this podcast audio to the other planets on Gorgotrock or whatever it's called. So I think that would be great. I think it would be great because it's um, there's really something about just sitting and listening to all kinds of different stories, even stuff you don't think you would relate to. It it, it really always speaks to your heart, you know. So absolutely, and that's what makes my podcast so special it's literally speaking from the heart and we can speak from the heart all day long indeed but, um, <laughs> we're at the end of this awesome conversation um do you have any social plugins for my audience Renee before we wrap sure. up yes I do yeah um for anybody who needs help or wants to send somebody they know and love and sus even suspect might be in this situation because a lot of times you think nothing much is wrong because that's how it works. Um, I have a Facebook group that's called Custody Empowerment. Um, and this is the kind of Facebook group where you don't come on and complain about or try to find help with narcissism. It's, it really is for help in, in a custody battle against a high conflict co-parent. And so I'm on there from time to time and I send all kinds of relevant information about what's going on and what's best for your case. So um, that's a really great place to go. And my website, if you'd rather go there, is custodycorner.com. Not a www, just custodycorner.com. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Renee, for sharing your story and using it to help others. It truly resonated with me and I'm sure everyone who's going to listen to this episode. Thank you so much for allowing me to tell my story and reach your people. Yay, all of the audience member peeps out there. Happiness. <laughs> yes, absolutely. To all my listeners, stay healthy, stay safe. Um, please 
reach out and speak up. There are people who want to help you and care about you. Please seek the necessary resources to get help. And until next time. Bye. Hello, everyone. It is your heart warrior, Dion, here. I hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Words of Heart. If you like this episode and would like to leave a rating slash review, please do not hesitate to do so. You can leave the review slash rating on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. In addition, if you would like to let me know right away your thoughts on this episode, you are also welcome to leave a voice message right here on the Anchor app. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have a wonderful day.